1: Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and Adam Brody. This drama tells the story of recently divorced Toby Fleischman, who dives into the world of app-based dating with the kind of success he never had in his youth. Then, his ex-wife disappears, leaving him with their two children and no hint of her return. Affects this, Fleischman is in trouble. Streaming November 17th, only on Hulu.
0: Okay, Ready?
1: Think what you know and it's about a time when you get yourself in a weed
0: I wanna know
1: something that she i think about everyone you need I'll hold in it, things are really bruising, now I'll have you seen you wanting you, hey It's a ratio Okay
0: though it's a ratio. Okay, though That might be the best question I've ever been asked.
1: <laughs> you're a phenomenal person. I mean, you're legendary.
0: I am a fan of you, my brother. I want to hear you talk about what being black means to
1: you. To me, it's the luckiest thing in the world. It's my lottery ticket being born into a culture that is so varied so extraordinary a history of ingenuity and struggle and survival and overcoming and resilience a history that can be known and claimed coming out of a cultural tradition that says make a way out of no way you know make something from limited resources which I've experienced even you know chairing an African-American studies department, not endowed department, you know, but how can we have the most extraordinary faculty and programming and and read the most extraordinary things um, and have it be the richest intellectual and creative space ever? You know, that's the black experience is making a way out of no way, turning, you know, stone into, into a pot of soup.
0: Elizabeth Alexander is one of the great writers and poets of our generation. Her new book, The Trayvon Generation, looks at the world in the wake of the murder of Trayvon Martin. It's an extraordinary book, as all her work is extraordinary. I wanted to talk to her about this book, about writing. She's a famous poet, what that is all about. And she also interviewed her longtime friend, Michelle Obama, on stage in brooklyn and in dc a few years ago when michelle obama's autobiography came out and i wanted to talk to her about that because i was there i saw and it was an extraordinary event to watch elizabeth alexander in conversation with michelle obama so let's get into it it's elizabeth alexander on Show. Congrats on the book, The Trayvon Thank you. Generation. What is The Trayvon Generation? What does that mean to you?
1: Well, I think literally The Trayvon Generation is a the generation of young people who grew up knowing of the inevitability of very broadly broadcast public events where black people were killed because of the color of their skin where we had an increased vulnerability because of the color of our skin. So we can say all of the names just by one name, you know, Trayvon, Tamir, Tamir, Quan. I mean, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. And what's interesting about Trayvon himself is that that is actually one that wasn't taped on a phone. Um, But it is one that was described so vividly and has so much iconicity to it. Hoodie, Skittles, You know, Arizona tea, you know, all of these things that we know uh, about the story that is the most utterly quotidian story Mm -hmm. of a young person leaving home at dusk and going out to get a snack and take a walk and come back home and being hunted and and killed by someone who was not brought to justice, as is the case in most of these situations. So the thing that I wonder with so many of these cases and their preponderances is what are the young people who came of age? So, you know, Trayvon would be 27. Uh, So let's say we're talking about young people, you know, 20 to 30. Um, We can blur the edges a little bit. Um, How have they been formed by the threat of violence against them? How have they responded to the trauma of seeing some of these videotapes Over and over and over and over again. What does it mean that when you're on the school bus coming home that you might have outside of, you know, the loving context of a home and your grownups, you might have looked 30 times at, you know, the photograph of Philando Castile in the front seat of his car in his bloodied undershirt Mm. with his girlfriend and the baby Mm. right there in the car.
0: That's one of you the know, hardest ones, even and
1: even, to, and even to, to, to to the to the older people. You know that what we saw of the 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 killing of well, Michael Brown's body lying in the street. Um, you know, Eric Garner.
0: A, a lot of people who were there talked about that he that, Eric, that 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 Michael Brown laid in the street for so many hours is what more deeply traumatized those people that led yes. to them protesting for multiple days with a passion That's that we right. had not seen earlier. And they a lot of people located like, so that, that visual aspect of it. I've been wondering for a long time, I think almost all black people, we could say 20 or 25 names and they could see the names we've talked about, Laquan and yes. uh, John Clayton and Tamir Rice. And we could see videos in our head just like, you know... What is that doing to us that we have 20 to 25 snuff films in our short-term memory that we can call upon at any second?
1: I mean, snuff films, you know, (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. And and, and look at the culmination, I think. I mean, it it sort of never culminates. But to me, George Floyd's Mm. murder Mm. and the fact that it was captured – by 17 year old Darnella Frazier.
0: Would have been so completely not only- wiped under the rug if not for her.
1: Exactly. So not only do we have the audience out here, you know, a, a, us young people, everyone, and also crucially people who are not uh, tuned into paying attention to the fact uh, uh, of this disproportionate uh, and cruel and, and terrifying violence. So we have all those folks watching. But we also, within the frame, if you will, There's an audience have this 17-year-old girl. Can we even imagine what kind of courage and what kind of trauma? She used the word trauma to say how she felt after standing next to those four police officers.
0: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. For
1: nine minutes, she didn't flinch. Where does that come from? I mean, I think that in part, it comes from uh, our something being blunted in our perception, but it doesn't take away the ability to be traumatized. I mean, blunted meaning we know that violence is around the corner and that's why she had the presence of mind to record it and literally changed history with that. But what about her? Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth the I, the podcast, wherever you listen.
0: The thing that's interesting for those of us who have been around for a little while and have seen a lot of this stuff and have read some of the history, this is not new. There were there were people before in the 70s, 60s, 50s, et cetera, obviously back to the 20s and lynching, uh, but there wasn't the hyper prevalence of cameras. So they were sort of like, I mean, urban legend is a bit pejorative, but, like, within the urban community, we're like, remember what they did to Philip? You know, I heard about what they did to Philip. I was there. I saw what they did to Philip. But there's not that, 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 that video that we can put on the web and quantify it for everybody. But we've been hearing these stories and traumatized by this possibility for generations.
1: Well, yeah, you know, I I look back at at two very, very big cases, um, Emmett Till, 1955, and the technology of the time was the photograph in Jet Magazine. So what I think is quite fascinating about that is that that – well, first it was his mother making sure, taking the body, I will show the world what they did to my child, showing it in Chicago. We've also seen the film that was – kept alive in Eyes on the Prize of all of those thousands of folks going past that church, falling out, and his ruined body in the casket.
0: Destroyed.
1: Destroyed. We've seen seen that, but also her choice, a very courageous one again, to say you can put this picture that is the most horrible image I can never erase from my own mind and heart in Jet Magazine so people will know. And, you know, there are, um, of course, many different ways to think about what catalyzed the civil rights movement or what brought it up to another level. But some people call Emmett Till the sacrificial lamb of the civil rights movement and that that awareness, which was as widespread as you could get it with the technology of the times, um, moved people to action. Then if you look at, you know, in our little more of our coming up when um, when Rodney King was beaten. And in the early mm-hmm. days mm-hmm. of people having video cameras, mm-hmm. people didn't yet have cell phone cameras, mm-hmm. but they did have video cameras. So, George Holiday in an apartment across the street hears something going on, turns on his video camera out the window, white guy, uh, and records those 81 seconds mm-hmm. that also were generationally galvanizing, made more so by the acquittal of the police officers mm-hmm. in that first trial. And the LA up- uprising that, that came after that. So, you know, I think that as technology has developed, what we have now that really is very unusual is is you know, we've always had the ability to know more, but the sheer variety of places, of people, of stories. I mean, I don't know, you know, some some days it's Tamir at the gazebo, mm. you know, because he's 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 moving like a little boy. You know he has so he's, little he's, time.
0: It's just and, everything and that killed way
1: he's sort of I would say frolicking yeah. in that picture, you yeah. know, I mean, we're parents. We know how kids move at different age. This boy is frolicking, and in seconds, short seconds he is he is murdered. I know i might my, I myself just feel like what hurts most uh you know if, it's a, it's a rotating cast,
0: I mean. To go back to the beginning of that paragraph, Rosa Parks in her autobiography talks about she wasn't tired that day on the bus. She thought about Emmett Till, right? She had just been briefed on yes. what happened in the Emmett Till trial. And she said, I, I can't, I can't. For him, I can't. So that was a galvanizing moment for so many people. But, yeah, we're parents. As a mom, can you even imagine... The feelings, the courage, the anger that it would lead Mamie Till. Because there were a hundred Mamie Tills, a thousand. And, you know, obviously most of them would make the choice that 99% of us would make. Please hide this. We can't show this. We're ashamed. We're hurt. We're angry, whatever. And she's the one who was like, no, show them. Which is also like such a a black woman, like show them what they did to my boy. But can you imagine what it was in her as a mom that led to her saying, like, let's do it. Let's show them.
1: Well, I think of Mamie Till um, as I mean, as an unspeakably brave person and someone to whom we all owe a debt of gratitude. But I, I think of her like I think of a lot of Great artists. I think of her as an artist, because one of the things wow. that artists do, the great ones, is to bring forth from within to share that which connects us as human beings, to say, I'm going to do my best job with words, with paint, with movement, to help you understand something I know, something I've borne witness to, something I feel. And so I think that that Mamie Till is another one of those people who said, what happened to me is not just for me. Mm-hmm. Now that's the blues too, right? I mm-hmm. mean, like the blues is when I sing, when I sing I, when I sing my man done left me, I'm not just talking about me and my man. I'm, I'm talking about something that is a universal experience that I will put into song mm-hmm. so that others can cathartically feel. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I think about who are the people who do that for us? Um, and I just think of them, I think of them with, 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 gratitude. So how is
0: Trayvon? And I think with time we think about it as black lives matter, um, because it's Trayvon, it's Floyd, it's Arbery, it's so many names. How is it? How has it shaped America? We started to talk about how it's traumatized us as black people. We haven't yet gotten any significant police reform, right? So these things sort of keep happening, but I feel like it has had a massive effect on America. What do you think that is?
1: I think it has. I mean, let's just look at George Floyd happening also as it did um, uh, as the first wave of the pandemic and lockdown Uh, were really hardly beginning to open up, but like uh, people certainly opened up to go out and protest. And so I think that why that's relevant is we had two things that made the mainstream, that COVID made the mainstream understand. I think that seeing the tremendous health disparities with black and brown and poor people, how, how, how we were suffering COVID, how we were dying from COVID at different rates, Mm -hmm. Um, anybody could understand that. So I think, you know, having a racially and economically stratified society was a piece of what came very clear for folks who didn't already understand it during COVID. I think also for all of us um, experiencing tremendous isolation, which I think um, surfaces the question of what connects us, what binds us, what's important. What's right? What's wrong? What matters? Who are we, you know, in this moment of being physically apart from each other? Who are we? And so I think that, you know, because so many people responded and protested, even around the world, as we know, to George Floyd's murder, um, I think that it was a moment for broader collective understanding, even in the midst of the tremendous rage. Sometimes in rage, there is Understanding, And I think this was a moment where no one could say you're getting too upset about this. Mm. Uh, and I think also to understand, you know, I mean, George Zimmerman was, you know, a, a, a pretend mm-hmm. uh, law enforcement person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, with George Floyd, this was this was, you know, a, official power. Yeah. This was armed power. So understanding it as an abuse of that power, um, which interestingly, I mean, again, as I said earlier, you know, we know that, that, you know, one of the things that was so deep that, that also led to the book, um, with, in the case of Trayvon, that, you know, he's killed in 2012, George Zimmerman's trial is in 2013. He's acquitted. It's just shocking. You know, we've heard the tape we've heard, you know, and, and he's, and he's acquitted. And at the same time, and this, I remember with my, you know, whatever they were at the time. 12 and 13, 13 and 14, My Two Sons, we heard about this when we came back from seeing Ryan Coogler's Fruitvale Station. Mm. And so thinking about what I'm interested in, as you know, in the book, is the art making and the filmmaking and the poetry, um, the way that mostly Black artists have been helping us experience and understand this moment. So I think the brilliance of Fruitvale Station is that It, too, uses and references the videotape, the killing of Oscar Grant in the Oakland uh, 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 train station. And what the film gives you is a day in the life of this dude named Oscar Grant. And I think if you follow anybody in a beautiful, well-made film with a brilliant actor like Michael B. Jordan, you know, everybody's days has all the stuff in it. You know, you get up, you hit the alarm again, you know. You have your breakfast, you take your shower you play with your baby you fuss with your partner you pick something up for your mother you plan a party you go to work this happens that happens you drive around you run out of gas what is a day in any human being's life and that film gave us that so and you always know how it's going to end Three, so that when you get to the to, to the representation of his his murder at the end you are just shredded because he's become a human being who matters to you. And that's where I said, it's our art makers who are proximate to this generation who are going to help us move through it.
0: You, you, I mean, what you described there is something I've been thinking about too, about we're trapped in this loop. Like we're forced to watch the horror movie over and over again. There's the shooting and we are traumatized by that. And then there's, Either the grand jury proceeding or the trial, which 99 times out of 100 does not go our way. And so we're re-traumatized by that. And then a certain period after, there's the art, the film, the podcast, the documentary that takes us further into what happened with Sandra Bland or Trayvon or what have you and you know, or, or, or Fruitvale Station. And then when we finish consuming that, you walk out of the theater and- the cycle has started again with a new name. And there were other names that are at other parts of that same familiar process. And I'm like, we're like stuck in a horror movie.
1: Well, I think like, yes, (laughs) but I also think not necessarily stuck. And that's why what I wanted to do in the book is say, look at all of these responses and representations. You know, when I talk about, um, I quote from Adrienne Su's poem where she talks about growing up as a Chinese American girl in Atlanta and the Confederate monument, this shrine to white supremacy of Stone Mountain was someplace where people went, they picnicked, they watched the laser show, they recreated. And for her, as a, you know, from a Chinese immigrant family, when she realized that white supremacy meant them too, when she realized that this fun place was a place that represented hatred, violence, and rendering non-white men subhuman, she experienced what she called the shock of delayed comprehension. Mm. And I just love that phrase. I think it's so useful because it helps us think about the things that are around us all the time that in order to sort of survive or move through the day, you just don't analyze it. But, you know, when you when you do, what do you do with that comprehension? And what I would argue is that making, you know, making community political action. The book is arguing for sharp, 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 critical thinking and making a case for what it means that the teaching of history is being demonized and taken away from us. You need sharp, critical thinking to move through this and to listen, you know, in the music of. Kendrick Lamar or flying Lotus. And there are a number of, uh, I think very, um, important videos, uh, made by hero Murai and made by, uh, Khalil Joseph that I talk about where there is our kind of Afrofuturistic visions of what would it mean? Could the, could the child who was shot come back, mm-hmm. uh, that give us that moment of experiencing the impossible. If you think about, you know, the all right video of Kendrick. And when the black boy, the, you know, Kendrick, he's a man, but he's, there's something boyish about him. I think in that video is flying. And then the police aims, not a gun, but his finger, like a gun shoots him down. Our stomach clutches here. It is again. But then when the body lands, the last images, he turns to us and opens his eyes and smiles. So what we learn is, you know, it's, a, it's a, I wouldn't say a utopic vision, but it's an important vision where the police officer is disarmed and the young black man in the streets of, you know, uh, of, of Compton, so vulnerable, has in fact survived and survived to make art. Mm. And survived to make art, by the way, in the case of that song, All Right, that was a, you know, an anthem. Uh, a, a gathering, a gathering for political action, I think it um served a remarkable dual purpose of being both a total party song mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, which is I think, as you know, I write about it, you know dancing, being in community, using your body, being embodied, black joy together, but also was an anthem for a lot of of street protest
0: yeah i I can't forget the people who went to a trump pro Trump rally in like 2015 when it was like early and it was like public KKK rallies and they're in the midst of this very violent situation where they could get beat up or killed and it would be sanctioned and, and, and singing all right. That sort of brought tears to my eyes, like just the level of protest and, and, and defiance that they would show in this space.
1: Yes.
0: You talked about all the things that led to, Floyd, the George Floyd moment blowing up and like absolutely the COVID and the connection, I think too, that video was so long. All the other yeah. videos are very short, right? Somebody yeah. gets shot the light, and then you're heartbroken. The Floyd video is so long. And I think that is part of what made that one so much more traumatizing.
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right. And once again, thinking of the nine minutes and that girl holding her phone steady, Mm -hmm. you know, I almost can't even. But um, I wrote about the trial of um, uh, former officer Derek Chauvin, who who killed him. And about, you know, in the length of that video, and and it's in a chapter called Does the Negro Shed Tears, Mm -hmm. which starts with a letter that was written to W.E.B. Du Bois, who makes a number of appearances in the book in the early part of the 20th century. And a white researcher writes Du Bois and says, I would like to know, and I'm told you can explain, does the Negro shed tears? Can black people cry? are we human? I mean, this all goes down to, are we human? What do our bodies do? Are our bodies made for the beat down? Are our bodies made to dunk? Are our bodies, you know, made to be objectified? Or do our bodies like laugh, cry, you know, go to the bathroom, live, love, make love, like do what bodies do can the Negro cry. And I argue that that kind of, you know, and But how do you know that the baby is born? You wait for the cry. That's how we know the human baby is alive and on this planet. So I move it all the way forward. And I talk about watching the Derek Chauvin trial and all of the black elders who wept Mm. and all of the black people who wept on the stand, black men, Mm. the neighbor who cried the brother who cried and said, he loved our mama so much. The children, you know, the, the, the young man in the, in the shop who said, I wish I hadn't, I, the bill was counterfeit, but I wish I hadn't said anything. Mm. Um, and you know, just, you know, what is in those tears, but what is also in tears repressed and tears denied. What does it mean for all of our health ailments uh, when you know our grief is swallowed and not expressed and what does it mean for the people who do literally continue not to see us as well, you human make,
0: beings you made me think about the studies that show that doctors uh think that black bodies experience less pain or experience yes. pain differently than white people and that affects the treatment and the medication that that we get or their their, the, how quickly they recognize that we're in pain, um, but also the myth of the black superhuman, which oh, yeah. we, we've heard before, but like Michael Brown, the officer said, oh, I thought he was super strong, like, you know, a, a mythical beast. So I needed to, to subdue him. And like, so this police officer is afraid of this 18-year-old boy because he's black and somehow super strong and bull wreck his car or something. I mean, like can you imagine the psychosis of thought in these people's minds to look at us and think we're not human. We're superhuman. We're
1: well, and it's, it's, and look that that too is old and that too has roots. You know, I've written about it um, for the Rodney King trial, um, you know, uh, uh, the Simi Valley trial and all of the language uh, around, you know, he was described as bear, like, He was described as being an unstoppable physical force. Um, uh, You know, he was described as 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 being superhuman. Um, And, you know, these are very, very, very old tropes that persist. Um, You know, and if you just take it down one notch, it's Ahmad Arbery using his. And I'm sure you've um, read Mitchell Jackson's Mm. definitive Mm. essay on Ahmad Arbery that was in, in Runner's World. Uh, asking the question, what does it mean for a black man to run?
0: Mm.
1: What does it mean to, you know, to be, to use your body in public and you're not playing basketball, right? But you're out here running and free. And what is projected onto you is that you're about to, you know, rob everything, take everything. You couldn't possibly just be running. So, I mean, you know, we are matter out of place, and sometimes that has deadly consequences.
0: So let me shift gears for a minute. Cause the last time I saw you, I waved to you. You didn't wave back. You didn't say anything, but there was 20,000 other people there, and we were in Brooklyn, and you were on stage Gosh. interviewing Michelle Obama, and I was in the crowd, so you definitely did not see me. So I'm just joking. I
1: winked, baby. I saw you. I just gave you a little <laughs> wink. You missed it. But it
0: was an extraordinary <laughs> event. It was one of the early events on Michelle Obama's yeah. book tour, and you were on stage interviewing her, and it was an extraordinary hour of conversation and stories. And I just want to hear from you what that sort of surreal experience was like and what talking to uh, Michelle Obama in that sort of platform was like.
1: Well, yeah, I did another one of them in Washington as well. Um, although, of course, you know, they were both amazing. But the Brooklyn one was the littest. <laughs> and, you know, what I've um, uh, I mean, she's she's a dear friend to me. And what I've always said uh, uh, about her is that who she is as a public figure, figure, who she appears to be, who she is on that stage is who she is. I've known a lot of people in public life, and I've never seen that much absolute congruence mm-hmm. with the private self and the public self. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as you know, what do you think about something? you know, how do you feel about something? Um, that is her. So trying to sort of um create for her a living room effect mm-hmm. so that she had a degree of safety doing something that she'd never done before. I mean, obviously huge crowds, but, She never wrote a book before. And as I pointed out early in that conversation, I mean, obviously like, yes, you know, those people are there for her, but those people are there because of a book, because of a quite extraordinary book, because of a book that's a coming of age story that has so many familiarities in it, that's told in a a beautiful voice that we can all understand that tells us history, you know, from from one woman's perspective. A really spectacular book, um, a book that I hope especially young women coming of age uh, read. So that's what seemed most remarkable to me: is twenty thousand people want to hear about a book, and so we going to talk about a book.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, in, in, you know, in Brooklyn, you know, <laughs> a book uh-huh. by Michelle Obama. I mean, you know, like you know, you could have done that two, three nights in a row. Um, you know, you say that there's this great congruence and we know her very well as a public figure, but what is it like just talking to her and, you know, who has she been for you?
1: Well, um, you know, I don't, uh, really talk about this because, you know, for, I, I don't talk about any of my friends, you know, uh, business, but, um, um, we, you know, we met long ago, uh, when, um, president Obama was a professor at the University of Chicago. I was a professor at the University of Chicago. Hyde Park, Chicago is a very interesting, progressive, pretty small community. Uh, we were the same age. We were both about to start having our kids. Um, you know, So you just find the people you're supposed to find, sure. which is a beautiful, beautiful thing about, um, about my time in that in that community. Um, and so then, you know, having, you know, our kid, first kids are are two months apart. Um, so as you know, you know, the people who you go through that stage uh, of life with, um, something very, very, very precious happens. And I think that what's been incredible to see in their service, in their sacrifice, in their bravery, uh, in what they gave the country and the world, in what they gave black people certainly, but what they gave everyone, uh, it's, it's too much to count. Uh, so I think, um, you know, providing the safe space of friendship as one does for any, any friend, uh, felt like a sacred thing to do. But again, you know, just as I said, you know, that humor, that, that truth telling that, telling it like it is that, that, you know, kind of um, being able to talk very plainly about marriage and its dynamics, which I think is, again, a very, career, you know, I don't talk about like that in public, <laughs> but but that's who she is. And I think in a way, it, interestingly, it goes back for me to Mamie Till. It goes back to me to the people who make a tremendous sacrifice in sharing themselves because it can be meaningful and galvanizing and empowering to so many people. I mean, you may have had this conversation. You know, in the book, um, uh, I have had countless conversations with you know, kind of our peers, and it's the college counselor question where you know her her college counselor said, "Oh, you're not Princeton material. Don't even try." And I can't, you know, tell you. I mean, how many of us have said, like, "Yep." You know, they lowballed me too. They told me not to apply, but I just went on ahead and applied. Um, the lowered expectations about what we can achieve. But then we just do it anyway. I think that the lesson in that is so profound and it's profound to a younger generation, sort of say, like, you will be told no, you will be underestimated. What you gonna do about it? You gonna believe it? <laughs>
0: We both have, I mean, we, we've all had long friendships where some of the folks around us sort of ascend to some professional level and like, oh my God, you're like, you have like a really good job. Oh my God. I can't imagine what it's like, you know, knowing Barack and Michelle at the professor level. And then just not even asking you to talk about your personal relationship, but just like watching this person. I really know. What does eating healthy mean to you? From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Send to like, oh my God, Senator. Oh my God, like he might actually win the presidency. Like, oh my God, he won the
1: presidency. Like, and I really know them. Like, it's- that. It was a trip. It was a trip. But you know, here's what's so interesting and what I take away from it. I mean, never- would have imagined it. And I mean, it's not even like, you know, they plotted their lives for this thing to happen. I mean, that's not, we know that that's not how it happened. Um, but I do think when you see a friend achieve, you know, there's that, that great Brenda Russell song way back when, Uh you know, way back when I saw magic. And when I see any of my friends who have managed to do something extraordinary, Mm. There's always like, "Mm mm-hmm. I saw it. Because like, I saw it. I saw it. it. You just don't know where it'll go. But it it is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to see.
0: (laughs) You know, as long as I've known you, I've thought of you as a poet and a writer and, you know, an expert level practitioner of those sort of things. So let's talk about writing and poetry and just sort of some of your thoughts on how you do it and how you know that it's of a high enough level it passes your test like this can be sent along this can be published this is high enough
1: yeah yeah well what's interesting is that with this book this was um certainly the hardest book I've ever written because I've never written a book while you know now I run major philanthropy. And it's a very consuming and amazing and fascinating job. It's a job that is thinking about how to empower other thinkers, creative people, communities. Uh, You know, because at Mellon, we fund arts and culture and humanities and higher education and libraries and knowledge and monuments. And, you know, so I'm thinking out, which has always been a part of me because the way I've supported the writing is I was a professor all the way along, you know, chaired African-American studies at Yale for many, many years. And so, you know, there were always these dual parts. But making a book when you're teaching, uh, even though things are always busy and crazy, or making even a poem, um, it's not – I find that you fill the hours as much, but it's not a Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nine-to-five. And the summers, you know, like, yes, if you're a department chair, you actually work all summer. If you, you know, have to publish, you're working on your writing all summer – but still you're not nine to five in it, you know, all, all summer long. So there's a different way to be able to make space for writing and writing is de facto some of what you're supposed to be doing in this job. It's a, I don't know, nine to (laughs) a hundred. And so the thing that to the core of your question, how do I know when it's a thing worth sharing, creating that, Little bubble of headspace to be able to listen to it and not hear anything else, which in poems is especially important because of the music of it.
0: Because it's compelling you to know, you.
1: Well, just I just like literally have to hear it. Yeah. Um, hear it almost like I had headphones on and I was listening to a piece of music by somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, like up, ah, there's a blip. Ah, that Uh, ah, in that spot. Or to sustain logic. I mean, you know, you have this experience over the course of of books. Like, how do you sustain what you're trying to say? You have to be able to hear it. And so dipping in and out um, when there's so much in the day is very, very, very hard. And and I need to feel that I've been able to listen. But what I like about um, uh, because the last two books I've written, Trayvon Generation and the Light of the World eight years ago, they're both prose books but they are really poet's prose. And I find that I really love the shape of the very short distilled chapter. I really love ellipticalness, which is such a a tool in, in poems, but I think also works well in a certain kind of distilled prose where you don't say every single thing that happened. You don't connect every dot. You leave some leaps, which is part of where the reader enters And also, I think part of where in the jazz of it, because I'm always trying to make jazz music, uh, where there's punctuation in the sound, where there's space, where there's a blue note, right? Where there's, you know, that's what ellipticalness does as well. So I don't think like now I shall put in the ellipsis or now I shall put in the blue note. You know, you sort of make it and then you listen to it and then you shape it and then you listen to it. And that's the process.
0: And you want to hear music in it.
1: Yes. If I don't hear music in, of some form and, you know, music can, in every sentence, then I feel I have failed. <laughs> <laughs> so traumatic. I throw it away. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you start this book, just direct allu- uh, allusion to Du Bois. The problem of the 21st yeah. century remains the color line. Why that? Just as, as a writer, why pull back to somebody else rather than you have an amazing career, like, you know, create your own first sentence?
1: Well, um, part of, so, I mean, it's, it's an illusion, but it's its own sentence. I mean, and what it says that's quite different from Du Bois is, it was like the problem of the 20th century at the dawn of the 20th century. Therefore, we going to fix this problem. And so what I'm saying is like, yo, we haven't fixed this problem, <laughs> which is saying a different thing and We're which is saying dear. like this, this beautiful myth of progress. You know, I mean, we have progressed tremendously, but we haven't solved it. I think also just the kind of the poet I am, the kind of teacher I am, you know, other people's lines and voices. And, you know, again, it's, it's just like, you know, a jazz musician quoting John Coltrane's my favorite thing, but things, but doing something different with it, you know, that kind of all of, of that is in the Rolodex. Mm. And so it's part of what I call on and the way that I made that sort of very literal with the beautiful art in the book, I'm so proud of how beautifully reproduced the amazing, amazing art is is to say, I write with these images. This is the writing too. You know, this is the sample. You know, this is, and it is part of the whole. So no one but me could have done it, but it has all these pieces in it.
0: I don't know how to articulate it. I'm glad that you took the effort to make visual art such a present part in this book. I'll look at Beard in paintings, you know, if if it if it's if it feels slow or, you know, will, William Johnson, or you know, any number of people Kahende who move me. And somehow I find my way back to words. And I don't quite know how that happens. But something in their visuals will help me get back to the words that I'm trying to do you do you have a sense of how it is connected for you, the visual art and the, words.
1: Yeah, well I always um I I grew up in a home that had lots of visual art. My late husband was a painter. That's his work behind wow. me. You know, I've always made spaces. My mother did this too, very visual and sometimes it would be with like real art, art and sometimes it would be with, you know, a a ball jar full of my father's marbles from 1936, which is something that I I keep as sort of a sacred object and that is as beautiful to me as any work of art. So I have that sense of, of visuality and also um, that what I just think is such a great privilege about being an artist in addition to being a poet is that I feel like I am, I am making in the same period of time that, you know, Jennifer Packer and Robert Mm -hmm. Pruitt and Renee Cox and Dawood Bay and so many of the people who are included in the book are making as well. I am living in the same time that Kendrick Lamar is making. I am making in the same time that Jason Moran is making, you know, and I'm making in the same time that, 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 that Clint Smith is making poems. So I think that, you know, it is that not quite inviting everyone to the party, but that's just my sensibility is made. All of our sensibilities are made from being in a community of artists and also the artists of the past. I mean, look, here's the secret. Like Gwendolyn Brooks's poem, a boy died in my alley has outlived Gwendolyn Brooks. Mm. I pray that the Trayvon generation outlives me, but that poem, a boy died in my alley by Gwendolyn Brooks is no less vital and alive to me and useful to me as when it was made 50 years ago.
0: This is what we are trying to achieve as artists, a sort of immortality where we will leave something behind, a book, a movie, a painting, whatever, that outlives us so we will still be here after the body is
1: gone. Well, I don't quite think of it that way. I don't think of it like, so we will still be here because I feel like I'm going to be dead. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like... That is the nature of flesh. What will still be here is the art. It will matter that I made it, but what matters more is the life force and the message and the power and the beauty and the insight and the sense of humanity on a timeline. You'll you'll still be talking to
0: the world through this and your poetry. Baldwin is still talking to us on and on. Right. And, and I, I, you know, I feel bad for people who were like, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not an artist and thus their work will end with them. And like, you know, I even think about what did you do in your 30s? Like, oh, well, there's this book and this book that you made, right? So, you know, when I, what did I do in my 40s? Oh, I wrote those books and I did that. Like other people like can't do that. I think I think that desire to leave a mark is critical to what we're doing.
1: Well, I think also, and you know, because I write about, um, you know, my, my late father who we just lost three weeks ago and I write about him so sorry. as sort of a crescendo of the book, you know, free black men about what it meant to be raised by a free black man and all that he taught me. And I think of the, uh, the poem Frederick Douglass by Robert Hayden, where he talks about the legacy of Frederick Douglass. And he said, you know, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, he said, it's not measured by wreaths and statues uh, alone. It's measured by the lives grown out of, and the poem starts by asking sort of what is, what is, what is freedom, right? And then it says the measure of the man's life is the lives grown out of his life, fleshing his dream of the beautiful thing. Mm. And so I think that what every single one of us can aspire to do in our living, in our mentoring, in our teaching, in what we impart to other people. And as a teacher, I know this. I mean, it's it's beautiful. I, uh, one of my um, students uh, has, has a book of poetry. Oh, a student who was... How does it work? This book of poetry was a grandchild to me, basically, (laughs) you know, like, oh, like my my baby student, now she has. Um, And I think that it can be in book form, but also it can be in the ways I'm hearing so many stories from just everyday people telling me, your father did this, Mm. your father did that, Mm. your father showed me this. There were, you know, as it happens, he did many great deeds in a very large public career, But the stories I'm hearing now are, here's how he helped me get a job. Here's what he told me when I got fired.
0: Those things, matter so much,
1: those things matter. And I think that those are things that each and every one of us can aspire to. And so the way that, you know, the sort of the theory of children that's in this book is I talk about my actual, you know, offspring, (laughs) flesh of my flesh. Um, And what I've learned from raising them, I talk about my students, you know, three decades worth of students who are forever 19 to me uh, (laughs) and with whom I have shared so many of these ideas that are in the book and learned from them about what's in the book. But Gwendolyn Brooks's sort of dictum that there's no such thing as other people's children, Mm. that all of our children belong to us. And that we, a, a, a successful, a society is only successful when we love children who are not our children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we love Darnella Frazier. Indeed. When we love Tamir. Rice.
0: You're, you're a poet and that gives you an advantage as a prose writer, I think. But poetry is different than prose, right? And you can bring poetry with you but it has to be a little bit different. Talk a little bit about how you see the prose work uh, as different than the poetry. We aspire to be poetic, (laughs) but we're, but most of us are not, but, but you write the, the prose can't call too much attention to itself the way that in a poem, the language does tend to do that. So talk about how you see it.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, the tools of writing good, Poetry. I mean, the absolute distillation, the absolute precision. You know, fat ruins it. You know, you just can't. You, you gotta the uh, the the powerful ability to control time, which again to make to the music of a thing, and that's what makes it memorable. Those are the tools of a poet that indeed are very very useful um, in in prose. I haven't written much poetry for for a very long time. For a couple of reasons, and it used to distress me. But then I thought, well, you've written these two other books that are that that come from the same visceral place and employ the same tools. And maybe a small distilled prose book does a different kind of work in the world than a poem. You know, not better, not worse, just different. And why should we always make one thing? I mean, you know, we do what we can. I think, again, the reality, you know, I think it's important for people to understand that our lives have chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, these last years have been, you know, years of service in a very different way, different from the from the the, the teaching service, you know, department work and building work and, you know, and philanthropy work. Um, so... Where does your creativity go in the day? You know, being able to make a, an, an impact in a field that it, I am new to has required so much creative energy and literally so much time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, we're not infinite people. So I think making peace with what does it mean to be similarly thinking about when my, when my kids were, were very, very young and they're, they're, very, they're quite close together. And so thinking, okay, hmm, what's this? Like, I got these two little kids. I got a partner who's actually, like, starting something in another state. I got a, a, a teaching job. I got these poems. Like, what? I don't think I can do all these things. <laughs> so saying, okay, things are going to move at a little bit of a slower pace for, for five years. But then, but eventually you, you get to everything. Um, that's what I've tried to be wise about.
0: The, the last thing I ask a lot of people come on the show, what does being black mean to you? And where does it show up in the work? And your work is absolutely about defining what it is to be black for you. It's very present in your work. So, uh, but mm-hmm. I, I want to hear you talk about what being black means to you.
1: Yeah, it's such a great, nobody asked that question. And it's, it's such a great question. I mean, to, to me, it's the luckiest thing in the world. It's my lottery ticket. Uh, Being born into a culture that is so varied, so extraordinary, uh, a history of ingenuity and struggle and survival and overcoming and resilience, a history that can be known and claimed, uh, you know, coming out of a cultural tradition that says make a way out of no way, you know, make something from limited resources which I've experienced even, you know, chairing an African-American studies department, not endowed department, you know, but how can we have the most extraordinary faculty and programming and 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 read the most extraordinary things um, and have it be the richest intellectual and creative space ever. You know, that's the black experience is making a way out of no way, turning, you know, stone into, into a pot of soup. Um, I feel very happy that I was not born into a mythology that overvalued me by the color of my skin. Mm. That doesn't mean that I relish, you know, the ways in which being black and being a woman, you know, I mean, to this day makes people underestimate me. Um, But I am so glad that I am not discovering that the myth was a lie Mm. that Mm. I am not, Was not brought up in, you know, when Toni Morrison in that that famous, amazing, earth-shattering Charlie Rose appearance Mm -hmm. where she says, must you feel that someone is smaller than you in order to feel large? (sighs) Imagine the corrosiveness of that. (laughs) Imagine that, you know? So, I mean, I'm very happy I didn't have to work through all of that, you know, and that uh, rather and, you know, and that and being black for me also, the way I've experienced it comes from being raised in a family that, you know, taught me and showed me and exposed me to and embodied badass blackness, brilliance, beauty, power, perseverance, ingenuity, Um, all of that. And, you know, plus a culture that inarguably, I mean, you know, this is really just simply true, you know, out of the scraps, black people have made certainly a musical culture that has turned the globe upside down and spun it. Absolutely. Uh, so to me, blackness is bounty and, uh, blackness is strategy. And blackness is, is, is the hugest gift I could imagine.
0: Thanks so much to Elizabeth Alexander for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. Toray Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Toray, and produced by Jennifer Ford. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington, and Nick Carp. Our bookers, Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.